Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, controller. Are you ready to begin? All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, really it's good. going up so slowly. The state of the space flyer during the flight is being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television devices. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set here. Welcome to Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson reunited in the studio. And customer feedback has been generally positive, so the new jingle is staying. This time, a first for Space Boffins and possibly any space podcast. An interview with astronauts on the International Space Station. Also, I'll be speaking to the first person to walk in space, Alexei Leonov, and we're joined by Lucy Green and Graziella Branduardi Raymond from University College London to talk about the SMILE mission, which is, Graziella? The Solar Wind Magnetosphere Ionosphere Link Explorer. Fantastic. More later. Well, as science journalists, we've been lucky enough to interview a lot of astronauts. But the other day, for the first time, I was able to speak to astronauts in space. Now, this has taken quite a lot of setting up, as you can imagine, with the interview with the International Space Station conducted on behalf of Space Boffins and BBC Future. So let's join astronaut Scott Kelly and cosmonaut Mikhail Misha Kornienko via a Russian translator a third of the way through their year-long mission. I have you loud and clear. Welcome aboard the International Space Station. Thank you so much. You're both looking very fit and very good after four months in space. I wondered how you were both finding the the one-year mission. You know, so far, so good. Um, you know, being up here for a year is a long time, but, you know, we had both flown previously, so we sort of knew what we were getting into. The space station's an amazing place. We have, uh, you know, great uh, facilities and a lot of capability here. So, you know, I think we're both, just speaking for Misha a little bit, both both optimistic that, uh, you know, we got over 200 days ahead of us, but uh, those will be, you know, smooth sailing. I think that space makes you look younger. <laughs> it's a joke, of course, but at the same time, we are exercising twice a day, and I can only confirm what Scott has just said. We are very optimistic, and I believe that after my one-year mission, I will be even in better shape than before my mission, since we're exercising regularly, and I hope that our mission will be very beneficial for those who will follow us, and we are very optimistic. I gather that before the mission, you both got on well with each other. Are you still friends? Absolutely, even more so now. I mean, you spend a lot of time up here together, and uh, 
that just builds bonds, um, you know, between us. It's a, uh, you know, it's a great place, the space station, to build relationships and international partnerships. That's one of the great things about this uh, space station is the international component to it. We are still friends, and we'll be friends until, <laughs> until the end. Until we're in the dirt. <laughs> yeah. Are there any particular aspects of this flight that, that differ from the usual missions? Obviously, you've got a, a lot more going on. It's, it's a lot more about you this time and how you are performing. You know, because it's somewhat unique in regards to the, the duration, you know, more than we've done previously on the space station. I think, you know, if you compare our uh, involvement in in the human subject type of experiments, Misha and I certainly have more of that than I think maybe your average crew member might. So, you know, there's that as- aspect of it. Being up here for this length of time also has you involved in more things that we do on the space station, other science experiments and, uh, and such. We'll, throughout the course of the year here, we'll have 400 different science experiments going on. So, you know, our involvement will be, you know, bigger than, let's say, someone that here is here for a, a six-month stay. But uh, on the surface, though, you know, from a day-to-day perspective, our, our lives here are no different than any of the other crew members. You're working together throughout this year. What does that show us about working together on Earth? I mean, is what you're doing in space something we can learn from? I I think so. You know, this uh, space station, this neutral territory, so to speak, in a uh, very, very challenging environment gives us the opportunity to to work on something that's, uh, you know, very important, very difficult, you know, work with this international partnership. We've been doing this for over 15 years now, and it's, uh, you know, one of the great successes of the space station. We're getting great results now from the science we do. I think there's a lot to be learned from this in many, many different ways. And, Scott, have you learned anything from the Russians? I learn stuff from these guys all the time. You know, they have a lot of experience. Their long-duration spaceflight experience is, is more extensive than ours. They do a lot, some things different. You know, they're, they're more practical. You know, certainly their budget is less than, than what NASA has, so it's great to see what they, they can achieve with uh, li- more limited resources than we have. It's uh, quite impressive. And, Michel, have you learned anything from working with the Americans? I have to say that there is a lot to learn from Americans, first of all. They're very specific, they're very thorough, especially in performing their tasks and objectives. And I believe there is still a lot to learn from our partners, and we are learning from each other every day. For example, I'm performing all my activities in the same efficient manner, in a very precise and accurate manner. And I believe this is very important here in space. They are very friendly, and I cannot say that I was angry or gloomy earlier, but our American friends are very friendly, so we're learning that from them as well. So, in brief, I can say that, yes, we have to learn from each other. I have um, some questions from BBC Future readers, and I have one here from Leon Mantel, who asks, has your spaceflight altered in any way your view of humanity's role on our planet Earth? Every time I fly in space, I'm, I'm struck uh, by 
how small it makes the earth appear and how it makes us seem like we're all citizens of one place, not any particular countries. You know, you don't see political borders that are drawn on maps. You see physical borders only. So it really gives you the sense that we're all, you know, big one big part of one big team, Team Earth. And, uh, you know, the other thing you notice is the atmosphere is very, uh, very thin, looks very fragile. So, uh, you know, for me, that's th those are the two main things that uh, I find over m the course of my career here, how my perspective has changed. And I wondered whether your training has fully prepared you for, for what you've encountered so far. And that's a question from uh, Catherine Thurwell, another BBC Future reader. Yeah, absolutely. We have a great team on the ground, international team, not only in the U.S., but uh, in Russia, Japan, in Europe, uh, Canada, that train us for many years for these missions. So, um, you know, although there's, you know, a few things you don't uh, really realize uh, until you get up here and you can't really simulate well the the uh, microgravity environment on Earth, by and large, we are very well trained. And, uh, you know, and that's the uh, because of the great people we have preparing us on the ground. Does it change your dreams at all when you when you sleep above the Earth? I had an interesting dream last night uh, that I remember, but I'm not going to share that with you. Um, <laughs> In any case, I was asked after my last flight, hey, do you dream whether you're on Earth or you're in space? And I actually couldn't remember, so now I write my dreams down. Most of the time they're about being on Earth, but a lot of times they're about being on this, you know, sometimes they're about being on the space station too. So it's, uh, you know, like a lot of people's dreams, they're pretty weird. Thank you both very much for your time and good luck with the rest of your mission. Hey, thank you. Our pleasure. Enjoyed talking with you today. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes our event. And for those space acronym collectors, ACR is Audio Control Room. Well, thanks to everyone at NASA for making our link up with Scott Kelly and Mikhail Kornienko possible. And you can see video extracts from the interview on the BBC Future website. And don't you want to know what Scott Kelly's interesting dream is? Oh, gosh. That was what I came away from the interview. What was his interesting dream? Space must be like eating cheese. That's all I can think, maybe. That was an interview with space. I know. But... I, that was I was sitting there and, and doing this interview, and I was just thinking, I'm talking to space. And I just couldn't get over that at all. It was very cool. I was there producing it with... I think it was the NASA uh, woman in my ears. And every every minute as we'd go by, she would say, the ISS is now over Jamaica. <laughs> and, then a, and then a couple of minutes later, the ISS is now over Cuba. It was it was great. And I would be writing little things down as, as it went on. It was, uh, it was like a childlike thrill. That's all I can say. It, it was a very on message, Lucy, but you can just imagine the horror of being cooped up in something like the International Space Station if you didn't get on <laughs> with the person you were spending a year oh, there with. I, I, the psychology of it is so important, isn't it? You've got to have the right character. You've got to be able to be resilient. You've got to be able to cope with being away from your loved ones. You've got to be able to forge new relationships well and, and easily with the other people around you. It's not just about the sort of science and the engineering, it's about the, the human nature as well. Would you spend, Graziella, would you spend, if you had the opportunity, a year on the space station? 
Oh, wow. A year is a very long time. I think, um, yes, I would like it, but perhaps not to have to endure the conditions of the space station <laughs> for so long. But I wanted to add something about this comment about coming back rejuvenated. Indeed, uh, they will, because uh, I also understand that Scott has got a twin on uh, on the ground. Yeah, Mark Kelly. Yeah. Right. So when they come back, uh, special relativity, you know, Einstein says that they will be younger than uh, they left and they would be if they didn't go and in particular the twin will be younger than his brother so it works out fine yes that was a right comment to give I also like the thought of team earth mm. oh, it's I like that and the fact that they obviously have a lot of affection for it and it's nice particularly you know the press we get for about Putin's Russia is not necessarily all positive. And so to hear a cosmonaut admire the yes. way the Americans do it and to hear an American astronaut admire the way the Russians do it, yeah. that mm. is so refreshing. And it did feel like a world without boundaries there. It felt like Team Earth. That's right. Think. And we've just celebrated or, or marked the anniversary of the sort of end of the space race in 1975 when we first had the, the joining of the Soviet Union and America in space. So it's really nice to see that the legacy lives on. Funny you should mention that. We have more on that later on. Mm. This is the Space Boffins podcast in partnership with The Naked Scientists. So let's join astronaut Scott Kelly and cosmonaut Mikhail Misha Kornienko via a Russian translator a third of the way through their year-long mission. Still to come on Space Boffins, I'll be talking to Alexei Leonov, the first man to walk in space. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and on our occasional blog, which we're going to revamp soon-ish. Don't hold your breath. Spaceboffins.com. We have been saying that for... I know. How long have we been doing the podcast? Three years? I I, people, people like listening yeah, to the yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, now, we've had many mission acronyms over the years on Space Boffins, from the laudable Lisa to the ludicrous Juice, Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer, since you ask. But here's my new favourite, Smile. This proposed mission, due for launch in 2021, is a joint project between the European Space Agency and the Chinese Academy of Sciences. It's been designed to study the interaction of the solar wind. This is the stream of charged particles from the sun with the Earth's magnetic field. Well, Graziella Brandar... I knew I was going Bradu Ardi... Shall I say it? No, I'll say it. I'll get it. I'll get it. Don't worry. I'm no, generally get it. called Grazi. <laughs> Graziella Braduardi Raymond, uh, who's our guest, is from University College London's Mallard Space Science Laboratory. And Graziella, you're the European Principal Investigator for the mission. Now, you gave us the acronym earlier. Give it to us again. What does SMILE stand for? Stand for Solar Wind Magnetosphere Ionosphere Link Explorer. Okay, slightly tenuous. What will it do? What's the point? <laughs> well, of the it will do exactly that. It's going to study the link between the arrival of the solar wind and its impact on the Earth's magnetosphere, magnetic field, and study how the solar wind penetrates in the Earth's magnetic field, and eventually how the particles, the charged particles that make it up, precipitate down towards. Uh, the Earth poles, creating the fantastic displays uh, of the Northern Lights, or what we call technically the Aurora. 
And uh, a smile is going to do it in a very, very novel way, applying technology, systems, instruments that we normally use for astronomy, X-ray astronomy looking out from the Earth. Instead, this time, we turn them to look at the environment of the Earth, the magnetic field. So you're actually studying, measuring, monitoring X-rays? X-rays, which are formed by uh, the encounter of uh, the protons, or especially the ions that are in the solar wind with the atmosphere, the tenuous atmosphere of the Earth, or the exosphere, very pretty far away from the surface. And uh, in this encounter, they produce X-rays, soft X-rays, which uh, are imaged. Nowadays, we can take photos in the X-rays of the cosmos, and so we can take photos of the Earth environment as well. And the fantastic thing with this mission is that we are actually going to image uh, to make uh, pictures uh, of uh, the magnetic field of the Earth that is something nobody has ever seen, uh, really. Um, the magnetic field, uh, you can imagine so what, you'll it. So you'll be able to see, so we imagine the, the Earth's magnetic field like a bar magnet. With exactly, these, these see, with, uh, with a sort of out. donut around yeah. the Earth. And uh, we'll be able to see all the X-ray emission produced on the day side where the solar wind comes in from the direction of the sun. So this hasn't been done before. This is a, a unique way of, of looking at the magnetosphere. Then. Absolutely, yes. And what stage is it at? Is it in a study phase or is it de- definitely It's going in ahead? a very initial study phase. This is a, a mission that has been uh, selected out of 13 that were proposed uh, last March. It's been selected by both uh, the European Space Agency and the Chinese Academy of Sciences to study be studied to see if it is feasible and uh, if we demonstrate that then at the end of this year it should be uh, selected for what we call implementation. That doesn't mean it's going to really go. We have to study it for another two years until it's selected for uh, you know as a mission and then it's going to go in 2021. But we are on, on a good way, especially being selected uh, uniquely. You know there is no other contender. It's, uh, it's a good, it gives you a good feeling. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a lot of hard work to be done. Lucy Green, you're working with Graziella on this mission, but you're also involved with several other missions as to study the sun and, and how it interacts with the work you're working with. Tell me if I've missed them out, Lucy. <laughs> Cluster, swarm, solar orbiter. Well, I tend to work more on the missions that look at the sun directly. So the origins of the missions that Graziella has been talking about. Um, Solar Dynamics Observatory is one of the missions. SOHO, which is getting on a bit now. I knew I'd missed in 1995, And then Hinaday, which is a Japanese mission as well. But Solar Orbiter, you're right. Oh, Hinaday, is that how you pronounce it? Uh, I've always been I saying Hinaday. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> um, it always bothers me that. Well, say it again, Hinaday. Hinaday. Hinodo. Oh, yes, I've been pronouncing that I've been saying Hinodo. <laughs> well, okay, it reads like that, but it's a Japanese word. Okay, um, thank you. So, so I'm, I'm interested in the source of the emissions. And so Graziella talked about this solar wind that we have as a consequence of, of the sun being a hot star. I mean, OK, it has a surface of 6,000 Kelvin, but its, it's atmosphere is in the millions. And so our sun also actually shines in X-rays. And it because it's so hot and it's sitting in the cold you know, emptiness of space, it's expanding out and it's producing this very gusty solar wind so I want to know how is that solar wind formed in particular why is it gusty which then links into the science that Graziella will be doing with SMILE. 
Have you also studied it from an x-ray point of view? Yes, most definitely. So in fact, one of the missions I used to use was called Yoko, another Japanese (laughs) mission, Sunbeam. And that was really the first satellite to give us a very um, detailed view of the sun's x-ray emission. We had images and data before that, but this was the first time we had regular, very, very high detailed images of of the sun's x-ray atmosphere. And what we saw was that it was full of magnetic structures um, that varied in intensity in terms of the emission of the x-rays coming from those regions. We saw solar flares, bursting into life in the sun's atmosphere and we saw eruptions called coronal mass ejections which is mainly what I study. I mean I think the science is absolutely fascinating but is there a point of these missions? I mean do they help us on earth? They definitely do and Although I'm slightly biased, I would say the sun is the most important star in the whole universe for us. Well, you, well that's <laughs> true, actually. I don't think many of I'm us glad can you argue agree. That, yeah. It's the star we can study up close from a scientific point of view, and therefore it acts as a Rosetta Stone to study and understand other stars in the cosmos. But it also is, is the star that really affects our daily lives because it sends out all these emissions. We talked about electrically charged particles, but it also sends magnetic fields our way as well that's carried in the solar wind and in these eruptions. And they then drive physical processes throughout the solar system, including around the Earth. So if we really want to understand the science of our own environment, we have to understand the science of the sun. Graziella, this is a, a joint mission with the Chinese. What do we gain from joining with the Chinese? Have they been open with you? And and has it come together as an organic way? Yeah, they are extremely interested in the science of this mission. And I think uh, really we have got the opportunity of uh, at least hoping to fly, to make it closer to reality because we have this collaboration, because both uh, Europeans and Chinese are agreeing that this is a good idea. And so I'm very grateful that this opportunity has come up. And they are very, uh, very open. We find them very professional. So far, we have mostly interacted in uh, in the science, in the simulations of what we had to convince the peer review for this, uh, uh, for this mission, that it was worth doing, that it was feasible. So we had to do lots of simulation, and the Chinese have helped very much on the theoretical side of uh, simulating what we could expect to be emitted by this uh, um, environment of the Earth. And then we have joined uh, those simulations with our predictions for the telescope, the instruments uh, that we are going to use and demonstrated that it is feasible and uh, produced images, produced videos of what happens when the very dynamic solar wind interacts uh, with the Earth's magnetic sp- uh, magnetosphere and produces this emission. And in fact, there is a little interesting aspect of this. We submitted a proposal for SMILE on the 15th of March and on the 17th, St. Patrick's Day, there was the famous St. Patrick's talk a great eruption from the sun that propagated to Earth and caused lots of disturbances in our magnetic field. And we have produced a simulation, in fact the Chinese have produced a simulation of what uh, the emission in the X-rays must have been, but nobody saw at the time, of course, so we have to wait for SMILE to see a similar event uh, a bit down the line. That's great, and it's nice to hear, as we're hearing from uh, Mikhail uh, earlier, it's Team Earth again. Yes, absolutely. And, and I can only echo the words that they said from up there, and it is Team Earth. Absolutely. It's something I'm picking up now. So. 
Well, Graziella and Lucy, thank you both very much for coming in. Our corrections and clarifications column now, and an email from Russ Olson in the US. Hello, says Russ. I wanted to mention there was a minor mistake in the Space Boffins episode of 12th of July 2015. At the beginning of the segment on Apollo's Soyuz, you folks said that Deke Slayton was the mission commander. He wasn't. Tom Stafford was. Slayton was the docking module pilot. It is, as I say, a very minor mistake, but as something of a space boff in myself, I couldn't resist. Keep up the great work, says Russ. Thank you, Russ. You are absolutely right. Deke Slayton was not mission commander. Tom Stafford was. And um, Deke Slayton, though, he's a really interesting guy. Um, He was one of the original Mercury 7 astronauts. So you see him in those pictures of the bright stuff guys with their uh, shiny silver spacesuits. And he was recruited to NASA in 1959, but uh, was diagnosed with a heart condition. So he was grounded through the whole of the Mercury, the Gemini and the Apollo program. Um, Instead, he became responsible for overseeing astronaut selection, and uh, you can see him portrayed in the film Apollo 13. He was, though, given flight status again, and 1975, the Apollo-Soyuz mission became his first flight. And here's a bit more archive from that mission, and one of the rare appearances in the space program of President Gerald Ford. This is the President speaking to the crews in orbit. Let me call to express my very great admiration for your hard work, your total dedication in preparing for this first joint flight. It's taken us many years to open this door to useful cooperation in space between our two countries. And I'm confident that the day is not far off when space missions made possible by this first joint effort will be more or less commonplace. And may I say, in signing off, here's to a soft landing. And President Ford was absolutely right, of course, as we heard earlier, and as we've been talking about all the way through the podcast, with Russians and Americans now working together every day in orbit. Now, the commander of the Soyuz spacecraft during the Apollo-Soyuz mission was Alexei Leonov, best known as the first man to walk in space, first person to walk in space. The cosmonaut and artist was in London recently to launch a major exhibition showing Russian spacecraft and artefacts, some of which will have never been seen before in the UK. It's called Cosmonauts, Birth of the Space Age, and it will open at London Science Museum in September. Well, at that launch event, I managed to get a brief window with Leonov, who's now in his early 80s. The interview had to be done through a Russian translator, so as with Richard's space station interview, you'll hear Alexei's words with a woman's voice. I know, it was a little weird for me too at the start, but you soon get used to it. I began by asking him what impact that 12 minutes and 9 seconds spacewalk had on his life. Много о том, что Земля круглая, но когда и соглашаться с этим с детства. Но 
And the first thought that came into my mind was the universe is limitless, both time-wise and space-wise. When you are on Earth, you don't think about it, ever. And in fact, you don't see any borders on Earth, and you think, ah, it's a home for mankind. This is what it is. Мы создали ассоциацию участников космических полетов. We set up an association of all the participants of space flights. Association of space explorers. И издали одну книгу вот этими участниками. Планета наша голубая планета наш дом. And we also published a book, Our Blue Planet, Our Home. Can I just ask how you feel about the state of the space industry within Russia? At the moment, because it's gone from such heights to more a more troubled position. Есть вещи, которые, ну, просто связаны с организацией. Well, basically, yes, you're right. We've lost a lot, and we've lost a lot because of the perestroikas, because of all the reforms and trying to modernize or not. And then what happened is that there were different. Now there are different enterprises manufacturing different bits of the Russian spacecraft. But the spacecraft is only as reliable as the nuts, the nuts and bolts that hold it together. And if one nut is being produced in one enterprise, another one in another facility. Nothing happens because there is no cooperation. And they haven't actually trained the new generation of designers, the new generation of people who could manufacture the spacecraft properly, because all that has been lost. We wasted a lot of time. Сейчас создана новая схема. Я на прошлой неделе участвовал в разработке закона Российской космической корпорации. The legislation is being drafted on the Russian Space Corporation. Это будет организация, которая объединяет все предприятия, связанные с изготовлением конструкции, проектирование, изготовление испытаний космических техники. So it will be one umbrella for designing, manufacturing and testing space equipment. So that should make a, a positive Да, я думаю, что это поможет навести порядок, поможет создать стройную схему от проектирования до испытаний. And I think that would put things right set things right and there will be one link between the design stage to the testing stage you oversaw crew training as chief cosmonaut in russia considering your experiences is there anything that you actually can't prepare an astronaut for среди первых в отряде космонавтов I'm one of the four remaining uh, cosmonauts who started training together as a team of 20, just four are remaining now. And after Gagarin's death, I became the chief cosmonaut overseeing the entire training. And we had gone through all the different programs, all the different types of spacecraft. And Korolev had always said that if you have done 500 different tests, you would be, the 501 emergency would be a piece of cake. And there is the basics that underlie all the training, which should prepare you for different types of emergencies. But if you look at the Americans and ourselves, we really had emergencies at every stage of our space flights. They did, and we did too. And of course, there are problems with technology, so you have to really train everyone technologically. Everybody should be really professional, technically. Три тысячи человек было просмотрено со всех сторон, физически просмотрен интеллект людей, чтобы отобрать только двадцать. 
So in order to select the 21st cosmonauts, they had to go through 3,000 fighter pilots in terms of their physical preparedness, in terms of their intelligence and their intellect, and in terms of their abilities, of all types of abilities, to select 20 out of 3,000. Finally, do you consider in your heart that you are an artist hmm. or a cosmonaut? Кто вы, художник все-таки в душе или космонавт? Я, знаете, есть, говорит, люди математического склада, я э, лирического склада. They usually divide people into mathematically minded people and people who are much more minded towards arts. Well, I'm a lyrical cosmonaut. I had friends. I'm actually quite well healed in terms of mathematics and physics too. But my heart, my soul was not in, in mathematics or physics. I always had to see the side that my friends couldn't see. For instance, I did research into light perception of space. So cosmonauts could not see certain things with their eyes, and I could. Alexei Leonov via his Russian translator. The exhibition Cosmonauts, Birth of the Space Age opens at London Science Museum on September the 18th and it will include Vostok 6, the capsule flown by the first woman in space, Valentina Tereshkova. And if you want to hear Leonov talk about his near-death experience during the world's first ever spacewalk, you can find it on the Science Museum's website and we'll put a link to it on our Facebook page as well. I think that's the most Russians we've ever had in the Space Boffins <laughs> podcast. Um, if you're listening in Russia, we would love to hear from you. And I thought Graziella and Lucy, it was just fantastic to hear... Russians from both ends of the space age. Leonov, one of the original original cosmonauts, and now we've heard from Mikhail Kornienko, who's who's up there now. I think it is nice to have more information coming out now about the full range of, of the um, Soviet space programme. There's a lot of parallels between what they were doing, let's talk about his training, and what NASA was doing, which we know because it was all out in the open. That's right. So I think for a lot of people in in, uh, Russia, the first time they really got to find out publicly what was happening was during this Apollo-Soyuz meeting when it was first publicly broadcast on TV. And it is my hope that the same openness can carry on and increase uh, with China now too and lots of other uh, countries that are building space missions. Hear, hear. Thanks very much to our studio guests, Graziella Branduardi, Raymond and Lucy Green. Do visit us on Facebook for pictures from the space station recording, a poster from Pluto, images shared by Maurice Reviol of the decaying Russian space shuttle and a green seven-inch vinyl single from our favourite band, Public Service Broadcasting. Oh yes, and uh, a link to that video of Buzz Aldrin punching a moon landings denier. Well worth it. I'm not sure I've mentioned this before in Space Boffins, but I had a tour a few years ago of the um, TV facilities at NASA, at Houston. And they have this great big TV studio with lights and cameras and all the rest of it. And I went through it and said, oh, this is where you mocked up the moon landings. They don't find that funny. (laughs) Space Boffins is a Boffin Media production in partnership with The Naked Scientists. The podcast is supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and the Royal Astronomical Society. We've been Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson, and thanks for listening.